During the Reformation, this was regarded as um, an unimportant book. It wasn't read much. And I think one of the reasons is that it's actually incredibly provocative because it doesn't let us off the hook. Um, It's blunt. James is not sugarcoating anything when he says this. And these are three or four verses from chapter 1. Verse 22, it says, Prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then he gives a little illustration, a little parable, a story. And he said, If anyone hears the word of God and is not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and when he's looked at himself, turns away and immediately forgets what kind of person he is or was. But the one who looks intently at God's purposes or perfect law or what God desires, his kingdom, basically, that law of freedom that lives in us, Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that man or woman will be blessed in what they do. Now, there are any number of people who are saying, do this and you will be blessed. People want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. But the point is that what James is saying, the only way to a (coughs) blessed life is to put into practice what you know to be true, to live your values, to live out in action the things that are important that God requires of us. So that's James. John 10, as Britt said and read to us in verse 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And there's, there's three things there, but the first thing is this, the, the sheep hear his voice. And we've been talking over the last six or eight weeks about hearing God. How do we hear God? The sheep hear my voice, I know them, and then there's this last bit, they follow me. So when Jesus comes to the disciples and he's picking James and John, all he says is, follow me. And at that point, they have a, an instant decision that they need to make. They either say, interesting proposition. I wonder what that means. Can you elaborate? Or they get up and they jolly will do it. Without any hesitation, without any kind of looking back over their shoulder. And Jesus actually later on talks about, in a parable, he says, the guy who gets up and looks over his shoulder... You've got to plow a straight course. You've got to get up and get moving and keep moving. And that's not a once-only decision. Evangelical um, Christianity has really messed it up in a way because they've said, we want people to make a decision for Jesus. Well, you actually do that every single day, and you keep doing it all day because every moment you are faced with, the, with this, this decision of how to act, what, is, what am I going to say? What am I going to do in this situation? How am I going to respond to the provocation? What am I going to do in this situation of conflict? What kind of person am I? Am I going to be shaped and, and battered into a form by what's happening around me? Or, or do I actually live 
those things that I value. So if someone does something to me, do I respond angrily and do stuff that is um, not good? Or do I make a conscious decision in that moment? Do I follow by saying, I'm a person who wants to measure what I say. I want to be kind. I want to... How do we respond? And so, you see, it's the following part is not something that we do when I first met Jesus. That, that too. But the truth is that you, you are making those micro decisions on a daily basis, constantly. And even when you don't notice it, should I put the TV on or shouldn't I? Should I watch this program or shouldn't I? And it's not just about what we're not doing. It's about how we can be creative. Because I think so much of the time we spend our time responding to other stimuli instead of being the ones who are on the front foot and saying, do you know what? Why don't I take 20 pounds, 10 pounds, 100 pounds, I don't care, and this month think of how can I bless somebody just in a random way? And it may be you get one of your girlfriends a bunch of flowers and a box of chocolates and you write a little note and it says, I was thinking about you and praying for you today and leave it on their doorstep. Or I'm, I'm not going to make them all up, but I'm just saying it's not only about responding to the stimuli that come to us. It's about us being those who are on the front foot and saying we are living out these values. We are going to be aggressively kind and generous and loving, etc. Because Jesus said, they know my voice. And here we are looking and saying, we want to hear God's voice. And he says, and they follow me. They, there's a response that's required from us when we hear what God wants of us. And let me tell you, you already know enough to keep you busy just doing the stuff that you know already. I don't have to tell you a hang of a lot more. So it comes down to this, listening and following. Not complicated, guys. Hearing what God is saying and doing it every day, all day. Mother Teresa, when she was 85 years old, and I've got it here because I want to sort of read a portion of what, what happened. She was invited to um, the President's National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. during the time when Clinton was in office and Al Gore was his vice president. And those two men plus their wives were there, plus this basic the who's who of political and um, social Washington. And there was this 85-year-old lady, sort of wizened and bent, uh, frail, and she stood up with all these people in her simple cloak, and she really eloquently and passionately called on all the people in the room to enshrine protection for unborn babies in the law. And she pleaded for compassion on behalf of little ones. The little ones, as she said. And this is what she said. How can we speak out against violence 
when we are the most brutal with the most defenseless. Now, that was obviously controversial and sensitive with the people who were in the room. And when, the, when she'd finished um, speaking, um, there was an awkward moment because both Clinton and Gore and their wives were sitting there. And then as she stood down, the audience roared their approval with clapping and they stood and significantly certain people on the podium remained seated. Ostentatiously, someone wrote. Here's the interesting thing. Afterwards, Bill Clinton was asked in an interview what he thought of her pointed message. And he paused and he said only this. Maybe he was wiser than uh, we give him. It is very difficult to argue against a life so beautifully lived. And he left it at that. I long for the day when we speak our minds and we live our lives in such a way that there is, it's hard to make an argument because we live so beautifully. That we aren't in reaction to stuff. We're not anti-abortion and anti-this and anti-that and anti-the next thing, which is one of the things that we've been accused of over the years. But that we are for compassion, for life, for creativity, for the things that are good and bring life. It's very difficult to argue against a life so beautifully lived. Jesus is, he's not yet put himself on the, on, on the stage. And he goes to a wedding in, in, in John chapter 2, you know the story. And there is a huge party and there's loads of wine and suddenly it runs out. And the bridegroom is going to be embarrassed. And mom calls him and says, she understands who he is. She calls him and says, they've run out of wine. What are you going to do about it is implied. And he said, it's not time for me yet. And her response is to the servants who are there. Whatever he says, do it. And Jesus said, go and get some water. All those, all those jars over there, fill them up with water. And they go and they do it. And there is this wine. And the bridegroom says, they say to the bridegroom, why did you save the best wine till last? Why wait till the guys are pretty well drunk before you bring out the best bottles? You do that at the front where they can taste it. <laughs> and I think that, that, that Mary knew exactly, explicitly, what the essence of faith is actually about. Whatever he says, you do that. Whatever God says, if we are saying, God, speak to us, we want to hear what you have to say, we want to know what your will is, we want to hear what you have intended for us as individuals, as families, as people, as the church, then the prerequisite is actually 
Whatever he says, do it. There's no sugarcoating it. Because in a sense, if you don't do it, it's a tacit statement that you don't really believe that. And that's a tough thing to swallow. What is more important? Your own sense of what you should do or what you want to do or what you think is important or what you think God is saying? Who's in charge? Is essentially what this comes down to. In the book, How to Hear God, he says, before we get to a stage where we are um, making Christians or trying to make Christians of all the people who are not, we should, as he says, we should want the Christians to be Christians. I, every now and again, when I'm in town, I, I stick my nose in at the charity shops and I look at the books. It's amazing over the years what I've picked up. And about a week and a half ago, I bought the Penguin classic, um, uh, Gandhi's biography, his own story of his life. Uh, just as an aside, it's actually quite disappointing. <laughs> so I only paid 50p for it, but that's fine. But here's an interesting thing, is that there was a point, he, he famously said that you Christians don't know what dynamite you've got in, in terms of the Bible. Um, it's more, it's more uh, is in, it contains enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, basically. But here's what happened. Here's an incident that... Um, it's not in the book, but Reverend Patterson, a respected friend of his, um, recounted that one Sunday morning he decided to visit a Christian church in Calcutta. And he got to the door and one of the ushers blocked his path and said, no way, Jose. You're not welcome here. You're not white. And you're not from one of the high costs. So find somewhere else, essentially. And he experienced that as an enormous rejection because he was quite, at that stage, exploratory in terms of he'd read Dostoevsky and various Tolstoy and other uh, writers about their Christian faith. And he was really intrigued. He'd been in South Africa for a, a long time, and it interacted with a lot of the Christians in South Africa. And um, he never again, he said, considered the claims of Christ. And he said this, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. Now, that's, that's really negative, and it is a cop-out. My grandmother was like that. She had a bad experience in her early 20s and then rejected Jesus for the next 70 years. It was only when she was about 96 that she actually finally acknowledged that uh, she wanted to, to live the way Jesus had called her to. But you see, when we don't live, and this is not, is not saying, is not saying um, that we are perfect. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen I haven't read it, but I've read a couple of reviews on 
uh, Bono's latest book. It's called Surrender, uh, 40 Songs, One Life. And, and there's a por- portion in the book where he's talking about his faith, and he calls himself a genuine but flawed follower of Christ who can't keep up. We know that we aren't perfect. And here's the thing. I, I know every time I stand up that I'm a mess. I'm, I'm not, I haven't got it all together. I don't know the answers. I'm not living in the perfect, the perfect life, basically. But that doesn't stop us from proclaiming what we have experienced of the goodness of God, of not being challenged to continue to reach forward to what lies ahead, as Paul tells the Colossians. At another part in the book, he says, in, he's talking about uh, how people want all the answers and everyone's vying because they've got the right answer to this question or that question in the church. And he says this, live your life, li- no, live your love. That's the right answer. And I thought that's really what it boils down to. Live your love. That's the right answer. It's the same as Clinton saying, how can you argue with such a beautifully lived life? A life so beautifully lived. You see, it's not complicated. You know what to do. Get on and do it. It boils down to that. And over the last couple of weeks, four or five weeks, there have been moments in our corporate life on a Sunday morning or through what happened last night and yesterday in that day of fasting and prayer. Uh, images, scriptures, thoughts that have come to us corporately together that I'm wanting to pull together and I'll send you a, a thing for reflection and for prayer. Because I don't think if we really truly want to be the people that God has called us to, that individually and corporately then we have to do what we think God is saying to us. We, we have an option But if we choose to be static and not respond, then we can't expect, I don't think, the kind of blessing that we look for. My sheep know my voice. No, they don't. My sheep hear my voice. You're supposed to pull me up on that. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. We are known. That's enough. You see, you can say, well, Jesus, if you go and read through uh, John's gospel, Jesus on many occasions said, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only, I listen and I speak what the Father tells me. It's the same thing for us. We look and see what is required of us and we do it. We listen to hear what God is saying to us and we speak it. We're not, we, we are, what's the word that Paul uses? Cracked, cracked vessels. But we hold enough light and love to be able to let that spill onto the people that we come into contact with. 1 Samuel 3 is an interesting thing because Samuel is a young boy. He's living with Eli in the temple and God calls him, Samuel, Samuel. And he jumps up, runs to Eli, thinking it's Eli. 
And Eli said, no, it wasn't me. Go back to bed. And then it happens a second time. And he says, no, go back to bed. And then it happens a third time. And fortunately, Eli twigs. It says in one of the translations, he discerned it was the Lord at that stage. And he says, listen, Samuel, go back to bed. And if it happens again, then say, speak, Lord, for your servant's listening. And we've been saying to God, speak to us, speak to us, speak to us. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear what you have to say. And he has. Both historically and in terms of that, the kind of logos of the word of God, but also in terms of the rhema, the the sense of the immediate word to us. And again then, we have a choice. Are we going to follow? And I think it's really important because if we do not respond, then I'm, I'm really certain that God will pick someone else to do the job because the job will get done. So, in the words of James, to end off with, if anyone is a... Prove yourself to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. I'm going to pray for us. And I think that uh, we're not going to have a huge time of ministry. I want us to just, as we reflect on this, to each of us in our own way before God in, in the moments that I'm just going to give us now, to make a decision. Because... Jesus is actually standing in front of all of us and saying, follow me. So let's pray.